to the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast that covers old school games of the modern games inspired by them. I am DM Mike, the DM who asks, are you sure? Because you're about to do something bad. Joining me is DM Liz, who asks, are you sure? Because you're about to do something so stupid that it's an insult to stupid people. And I'm not going to heal you. And DM Corbett joins us as well. The DM who asks, are you sure? Because he's got his hopes up that you're about to do something really funny. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) And finally, DM Jim, the DM who doesn't ask, are you sure? Because he's hoping for a TPK. Right. I I, I just announced, meanwhile, in parallel Universe 11B, when your party wasn't wiped out, your doppelgangers now do... What do they want to do? <laughs> You're not going to let that Doctor Who go, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally serious. You know, sometimes the table wipes 40 minutes into a con game. You can't jip people. <laughs> but at a con, sometimes that's the payoff you're looking for. Like, Especially if it's yes, like, Jim now Cab. I can have lunch. Jim <laughs> <laughs> <Or Jim> Ward. <laughs> Oh, Tim used to be that way. I think I've had a positive influence on him. He he would be totally like that guy in Reservoir Dogs. 30 minutes in, everybody dies. Okay, who feels like a taco? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are here to discuss The Hero's Journey, 2nd Edition. Yes, James Spahn was kind enough to send us a manuscript copy of the upcoming rule set currently on Kickstarter. Check our show notes for links. But first... Absolutely nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing at all. Not going to ask for emails. Not going to ask for... Actually, yo, we do have something. I got something. <laughs> well, why didn't you speak up? Man, you totally fooled... You fooled me. I totally bought that. I was like, wait a minute. We talked about this before we went on the air. <laughs> That's good DMing, man. You sucked me in. <laughs> all right, Liz. Okay. What you got to say? Well... As many of you may be aware by now, we finally started a Patreon page for the show, and we have some patrons that we'd like to give a shout out for having joined us in our cause for creating great podcasts. So without further ado, I would like to say for all of us a huge thank you to Amanda L., James V.W., Mark T., Ian E., Corbett K., Rob W., Noah G., Patrick C., Lawrence F., and Nacho S. I'm not giving out full names because, I mean, honestly, I don't know how private you guys want to keep yourselves. I want my own privacy. So in the future, I may just do a shout out with first names only. But in any case, for our first 10 patrons, again, thank you very much. We appreciate it. You're helping us pay for our feed and our Zencaster. So awesome. <laughs> Corbett K. Could be anybody. Could be. Could Patron. be. <laughs> Could be anyone, indeed. Did you pack your own Kickstarter, Corbett? I like us. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you. <laughs> it did help a little because we had a problem with the feed recently. 
And because I got feedback on the Patreon page, I was able to know ahead of time and start feeding to the people feedback. who know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> feedback. Eh? Eh? <laughs> feedback? Feedback on the feed. Feedback on the feed. Eh? Anyway, thanks, guys. We appreciate it and hope you enjoyed the Aftermath character generation. And hopefully you will enjoy the character gen for Hero's Journey. But barring anything else, we will take a cod break. Pod <laughs> a break. Cod, cod break. Finally. A cod break. A break for cod. A little Long John Silver's in there. I'd like to ask Corbett to cut this out, but I'm sorry he will not. So I'm not going to bother. On to pod break. Then Mike and the mechanics. Semester has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. You're playing the most phenomenal game ever created. Your skin grows cold from your first glimpse. Enormous peace gets a product of your imagination. Survival depends on a quick, decisive. Choices are limited. Stand and fight or run. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. TSR Hobbies Dungeons and Dragons game. Products of your imagination. Oh, it's another fresh new morning. Taco Bell, Taco Bell. Starting fresh and starting early. Taco Bell, Taco Bell. Snappy cheese and crispy lettuce. The freshest you can get it. Shredded, simmered, chopped, and grated. Taco Bell. Put a smile on your face. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Okay, Mike and the Mechanics of the game. This game has... A lot of similarities to the world's favorite, most popular RPG, but... <laughs> no, no. Okay, world's most popular RPG that people actually play. Oh. Oh. That yep. other one. <laughs> so, however, there are noticeable differences from first edition. I'll just try and run down what the current system is. You choose your lineage first, your race, what in other games... And this is important because depending on what you are, human, elf, dwarf, halfling, half-elf, changeling, it's going to determine what dice you roll for each of your attributes. The attributes are might, resolve, insight, bearing, and wheel. And finesse. And finesse. Sorry. Thank you. I always, I forgot one on Aftermath, didn't I? <laughs> anyway, I feel like King Arthur and... Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. <laughs> Five. Three. Seven. All of them are generally rolled 3D6, though depending on your lineage, some will be like 2D6 plus 6, others 2D6 plus 1, so on and so forth. Wheel is like the first edition luck, only even more so. Instead of classes, you have archetype, bard, knight, ranger, swordsman, thief, warrior, wizard, and yeoman. You have a profession choice, basically what you did before you became a character, an adventurer, which is kind of like the old uh, AD&D secondary skills, only depending on, you don't just roll on a single table, the, the percentages vary depending on what uh, lineage you are. So you, it's hard to end up with like an elf lumberjack. As amusing as that would be. Yeah. They secretly um, want to be. You know that. <laughs> However, your profession also tells you what you start what gear you start with and how much gold you start with which ironically is kind of like the old the aftermath age tables but anyway the usual combat is d20 try to reach armor class or higher bonuses penalties etc instead of hit points you have endurance which is a bit more truncated in level advancement than it is in traditional retro clones there's a single saving throw how do you feel about that, Mike? <laughs> but I digress. So, so wait, is a better or worse than a ba? It's worse than a ba. Okay. It's a golem ba. It's like, it's like too meh more than a ba. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's meh, bah, and... <laughs> okay, I think we need a table. No. And I never thought I would say this in my <laughs> life, but I think we need a table. Yeah, yeah, tables. Yeah, yeah. So, that's the basic system. Weapons do damage, which is endurance points instead of hit points, but, you know, zero, you kill more or less. There are some death store rules, so on and so forth. I'm not going to describe the different classes. Most of them are pretty much the same you would expect, except Yeoman. I suspect we'll be discussing Yeoman in the top five, though, so... Nah, no way. So onward to top five. The Save for Half Top Five In Five Top five. Okay, before we get to the actual five, first impressions. Try not to get into mechanics. And we'll start with Jim. This is a lovely game design that I think could be summed up as where 5e was a response to the OSR. This is an OSR response back to 5e. I loved it. I can see that. Yeah, there there are some 5e-isms that have worked its way into the game. I didn't mean that in an adversarial way. I meant that in the best, you know, let's just make a new alchemical mix of things. Building on. New, fresh, and different. Yes. Yeah. I I, I could agree with that. Corbett? Cards on the table? I didn't read it before the interview, which is why if you heard the interview (laughs) show, you may have noticed I didn't say much. Jim specifically, because he told me. But everybody's talking about it and getting me all hyped up. And I got a lot of big hype. And it was like going, oh, man, this Star Wars movie is great. This Star Wars movie is great. And so I read it. And this uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace movie was okay. That sounds mean. That sounds way mean. Let me pull it back a bit. Wow. (laughs) It had a lot of hype. DM Mike will be played by (laughs) DM Corbett this episode. (laughs) Let me pull it back just a touch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, Just a, a meh. it's it's a really neat take on on fantasy i think it's it's different definitely different i think i was just had all these expectations without reading it and that that's what our so, job is so to it's let our know fault the is what you're saying <laughs> it's no, your liz, fault specifically it's your liz fault. <laughs> i will take that blame <laughs> and you are just wrong well fine that's okay what's your first impression oh liz? my gosh well Anyone who remembers me going on and on about the first edition of this game on the other podcast that we used to do. What podcast was that? Save or die, save or die, save or die, save or die. (laughs) Anyway, anyone who remembers us covering the show on Save or Die a few years back, this kind of game and the mindset that it was trying to pull you into as a player, this was right up my alley in every single way. I am totally in love with the idea of a role-playing game that tries to encourage and also rewards you for playing in a heroic manner, you know, for not being the murder hobo that will stab someone in the back and then take their stuff. And also, I should probably say sorry for how my voice is sounding right now. I'm getting over allergies and I'm a bit eh. But anyway, I really loved the first edition. I fangirled all over the place when we did the show. And so I read the second edition. I am fangirling again all over the place on this because it does what the first edition did, but it is doing it even more so. And I did not think that that was going to be possible, but it was. I mean, this is exactly the kind of game and mindset that I would love to be a part of. So You were pretty gushy. Yes. Can I make fun of you for having a game crush if I had the crush in the same yes, game? Yes, you may. You, Liz has got a game crush. I do. <laughs> so that's my first impression. It's awesome. Okay. My first impression. It was both better and a bit of a letdown for me. That actually sounds a little worse than I meant it to, but... I had originally expected more to be changed, and less was changed than I expected. Many of the things that were changed I liked. A few things felt changed that didn't really need to be changed, I think. But that may just be my grogginess talking. 
and again, we're we're dealing with what amounts to a rough manuscript, so there may be additional changes before it finally hits the presses. So that is a fair disclaimer. Yeah. So this is. I don't know what the rest of you're talking about. I've got a PDF of the book right here. What happened to you? All right. Well, apparently you got secret connections. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, I just got a word doc. I guess my check cleared. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and I will start us off. My number five. I liked. He has imported the advantage-disadvantage mechanic from 5e, which, if there's one thing about 5e I love the most, it is that. It is such a simple, intuitive system. Yes, it's not as granular as bonus and penalties, but it's simple and it gives you the same result. And in my opinion, if it gives you pretty much the same results with a lot less math or charts or calculating, why wouldn't you do it? Kudos to that. If I had a chance to redo Victorious, I'd probably put advantage, disadvantage in it myself. That's a bold statement. That's true. I love it. I think it's a great system. I know it, it it's controversial, but I don't care. I love it. So, Liz, you're number five. My number five. Okay. Um, I guess segueing off of what I was fangirling about in First Impressions, one of the things that I really like about the second edition is XP. You don't get XP for killing things and taking their stuff. XP is instead awarded when players risk themselves, when they act heroically to defend others, when they roleplay effectively according to their class and their background, and when they work to make the game a good one for everyone at the table. Yeah, I thought that was way cool too. Though a little subjective. Yeah, um, I mean, naturally, it's your it's going to be up to your to your DM what is what, and not every table is going to do this in the same way. But the idea behind it, I just think that is awesome. You're getting experience for being good people, <laughs> and. I mean, not just necessarily that too, because according to role playing, according to your class and your background. But quite frankly, if you are playing this game, you should not be playing an asshole. That's not what the hero's journey is about. So nine times out of ten, it's going to be because you're doing your best and you're trying to make sure that everybody has fun. I think that's a really nice touch for these rules. Corbett, you're number five. Uh, Rule number one. Rule number one. Chapter one. Very first thing. I like the fact that he threw in... Uh, and this is true for a lot of games. They'll put in this kind of, uh, you can do whatever you want with this game. It's yours to control. You bought it. You have the ability to change and adjust the rules you need. And I like that. Ah. I do think, well, no, no. You I do think mine. it should really be, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just going to make an Asimov spin on this because I think the really rule number one should actually be you have fun. Because you should be having fun. That's really the whole point of any game, regardless of what it is. Asimov style Rule number one, have fun. Rule number two, the DM can do whatever he wants as long as it doesn't contradict rule number one. Then rule number three, the players should feel free to explore the game and the the world and their own character arcs as long as it doesn't interfere with rule one and rule two. So see, that's a much easier, more controlled way to handle that. Very binary. (laughs) I said Asimov. Yeah, very true. (laughs) Very true. But I was just thinking, like, rule number one shouldn't be that you have the right to do whatever you want. It should be that you should be having fun. It's hard to maintain a rule that's to basically go have fun under pain of torture. The floggings will continue until morale improves. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Jim? My number five is I'm just going to gush for a minute. It's the overall uh, game designer's intent of this game that I am just crushing on like a mad dog because uh, there's a sea of retro clones. There's a retro clone for every edition or box set version of D&D you can want. and some, At least one. And so, yeah, yeah. Sometimes more. The Hero's Journey is no more a retro clone than Dungeon Crawl Classics could be called a, a retro clone by merest of technicalities. It uses the OGL. That's, that's what I would say. Um, because James Spawn sat down and consciously based this Thing. They're like it's partly what Liz was talking about, except there's an undercarriage before it gets to the rules. Of he says in the introduction that it's based on the Joseph Campbell monomyth. Okay, so he's starting in the same place that George Lucas started with Star Wars, and then it starts fanning up into where he has taken. He sat in 2019 and cherry picked all the best bits 
from the different versions of D&D and similar games, stewed them in a pot like an alchemist and came up with this thing, which is not a retro clone. And it's not just another flavor of D&D. It truly is its own game and system. I mean, because it uh, on every scale, little tiny rule changes up to grand design of the entire game. I, I This isn't what Dave Arneson would have done, but it's very Dave Arnesinian, where Gary and Dave once collaborated on rules, and they got a good solid template that everybody's built on since. But like you were saying, I mean, the two big fantasy RPG inventions of the last few years have been advantage-disadvantage role and the dice chain. That's two at least I can think of. James Spawn sat down and invented a whole bunch and stuck them in this 200-page book. So I'm a fan. And to, to Liz's point, it's it's not a system I would run because it's not my style, which is more like DCC and MCC and Murder, Hope, Bowie. But that doesn't mean it isn't great. And there are other people with different tastes Very than me. point there, too. So, yeah, the Joseph Campbell monomyth. When you start with that, you've got me. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up the beats James Spawn is laying down in this game. I play... A slash D&D, CNC, whatever, when I want to play a game. I would play this if I wanted to develop a character. I really get that vibe from it. But that's not my four. My four, and this is a bit of a, a meh, not quite a ba. I'm ambivalent about it. He got rid of five classes from Original Hero's Journey. The Cleric, the Druid, Jester, Monk, and Paladin. Now you could if you squinted you could work a paladin-y type character through the night class but I'm I'm ambivalent about that. I it doesn't feel right for a fantasy game. I don't know if if that's really an issue or it's my old grognard coming out. You know, there should be no, clerics. I'm thinking the same. Not so much even the clerics, just the druids. Like these he leans into the the fantasy myth. I was thinking for sure like okay, there'll be a druid because or some kind of shaman yeah. or I mean, granted you could probably play a wizard that way. But then, you know, then I come to the point of well, if you can play a wizard that way or you want an assassin, you could play a thief that way. Well, then why do we need three types of fighter? You know, the warrior, the knight, and the swordsman. Wasn't it five types of fighter? It's like the thief. The th- well, no, the thief isn't really a fighter, I guess. But the, the, yeah, the really. knight, the swordsman, I mean, the ranger, and the warrior. Yeah, that's you're right. Four, technically, the five. yeoman kind of. You can kind of throw that in. Kind, yeah, yeoman. We'll, we'll get to the yeoman. Mm. Stay tuned, everyone, for the yeoman <laughs> coverage. Who will pull the yeoman out? <laughs> so... I honestly can't say that it's a genuine criticism, the number four for me. It just, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but I honestly can't say whether it's really, it's a design choice. And who knows, and play it, maybe it works out great. Maybe I'm just being too much of a Well, I was talking to you about the fact that it's what made it feel like a Christian RPG back in the 80s. There, there was one that specifically you had mentioned, and I, I thought about that one too. Dragon, Dragon Raid. Raid, and it, yeah, they tried to like emphasize religion to a point. It's just about the same way by de-emphasizing it. It's, it's just like it felt like that to me, and I don't know why. Liz was talking earlier about the Save or Die review we did, and I listened to that to just bone up a bit, and I, I found it mildly amusing that one of the parts Jim really loved was the be- he thought it was the best coverage of the alignment system. And there's no alignment in 2E. Don't! <laughs> but again, that's that's the direction he was wanting to go with it. And I understand. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Liz, four. I would say for my number four, I enjoyed the relaxing around the campfire ability. I'm not sure ability is really the right way to phrase it, but... Activity? Yeah, an activity. <laughs> A party of adventurers can successfully share laughter, song, trading stories, etc. They are then able to receive advantage on a single saving throw of their choice on the following day. Like in your victorious game, Mike, they have to state that they are doing it before they make the roll. They can't just have a crappy roll on something and say, hey, we want to do our advantage thing. <laughs> but again, it's one of the rules that's been incorporated to try to encourage fellowship and you know a sense of cohesion and bonding amongst the members of the adventuring party. And that is definitely literary. 
Yeah, you you read about in stories, you know, everybody sitting around the campfire at the end of a long day, and they're either trading stories about their past, their youth, you know, sharing things amongst each other themselves, becoming closer as a result. So I think that's a really cool mechanic. And it would be really cool if you could play with a group of people who would be able to role play it out, which, you know, it's not going to be possible all the time. But I I do think that the idea behind it is really cool. And I liked that a lot. Okay. Corbett? Okay, I'm going to straight up pull a mic on this one. Uh oh. <laughs> bah, bah. No, no, because it's going to be about boats, so get ready. <laughs> <laughs> in the equipment list, they have a list of every type of transport in there. And I understand you want to have a quick list of how much it would cost to buy a, a boat, a horse, or a wagon, or whatever. And I, it's okay. And I have a few quibbles about the fact that he has a galley versus a boat. It's just a method of it's the motor you're using, basically. But the real thing that um, I, I don't actually, know why you put it in there? No, no it's not. <laughs> what? A boat is used for inland waterways. A ship or a galley is sea travel. Wouldn't a boat travel on the sea with sails and a galley is more of oars? And that it's rowing? not a boat, it's a ship. This is a small boat and a large boat. I can't tell if you're being a hard-ass DM or you're just <laughs> quoting DM Chase being a hard-ass DM. <laughs> Because now I'm like, I'm kind of confused because there's like four types of boats. But it doesn't matter because that's not even what I'm talking about. There's four <laughs> boats besides the boat. Then there's the boat, which is a, I presume, a rowboat because it's a much lower cost than all the rest of them. And then totally all by itself. And I don't know why it's listed. I guess it's nice that he put it there, but he put in raft. Who goes to a boat dealer and buys a raft? Tom Sawyer <laughs> and Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> if you can't <laughs> Is it more expensive than the no, boat? No, it's it's cheaper than the boat, which I presume again is the And I guess if you can't a afford a boat, you get a raft. And <laughs> although at that point, why not just get a bunch of logs and wrap them tie together? them together? Because even his description is it's a bunch of t- it's just a bunch of things tied together. Maybe you make a sail. I don't know. Does it you spend forty gold on that? Do you want a real raft that's going to get you across the river, or you want some Gilligan and the Professor raft that's going to? I don't implode? know. Am I going in open water or fresh water? I mean, it's how got, does like, this like, count? Paddle I mean, wheels with. With little little coconut cu- cups with the water and just and you know Mike you didn't you didn't even count that one in you're sitting there saying that a galley and a boat are different for for open water and not and rafts are used everywhere so well you don't what up dude well you can use a raft on the sea <laughs> but it's not advisable okay so anyway yeah, rafts I see your point. what's up with that rafting and and the funny thing is in the weapons and just on a good note in the weapons and armor he's very like quick and to the point here's a sword here's a mace here's a piece of armor he doesn't go into like you know a ren sewer and uh you know the 15 different types of pole arms yeah like you know what there's there's things they stick people you're good but for some reason he went crazy on boats i'm guessing it's had a lot of boat travel hey i see boat and i think of like a little rowboat or something you know something that maybe four people can fit in if you're lucky and you row you've got the raft which is like a rowboat but you don't have sides and then you have the galleys and the sailing ships which are the really huge things that you're booking passage on or something well the the large boat and the galley cost almost the same amount of money. So you know what? This is silly. Anyway, he's got a raft. <laughs> On to the next okay. guy. Go. <laughs> Does the fact that there is a raft is that bothering you, or do you like that there's a raft? I, I'm really confused why he put a raft in. It, it, it's it's bizarre. It, it's it, I understood like the rowboat. Like this is a rowboat. I know what a raft is. I don't need to know how much you would pay for a raft or why you would get a raft. The raft is it in there matter. for super cheap ass players who want more random water encounters. <laughs> <laughs> and want to and... pony up a hundred gold pieces for a boat. <laughs> Or your whole party are a bunch of nobles or other types. They're not going to build their own raft, so they'll pay some some other person to make it for them. Well, you could have called it like River Barge. You know what? I'm really going into this way too much because it's just a dumb you raft. Are my but I just don't know you are This I'm... is very me. This is salute. Okay. Jim, yeah, yeah. save me. <laughs> we, we need a whole new music cue for the grognard off when it happens like that. Boxing bell rings. Ding, grognard off. What are we on? Number four. My number four is the, um, I might as well go ahead and skip the yeoman up front since I threw the stake in the ground before recording. For quick review, the archetypes in 
in the game, lots of things are renamed in the game, but we would say classes normally. The classes are bard, burglar, knight, ranger, swordsman, warrior, wizard, and yeoman. And I got to that yeoman thing and I couldn't decide if it was the most brilliant game design attempt to get a player to play the player character of Samwise Gamgee in a game or not. And I, you know, I haven't been everywhere and I haven't gamed with everyone. Maybe there's a table where that there would be people lining up to play what's basically the professional class version of an NPC. I'm, I'm not buying it. It's one of the few knocks I, I, I have on all the cool things built in this game. I can see, I, I mean, the Yeoman gets all kinds of cool powers and abilities and things like Liz was talking about that help the whole party out. I can see the utility and why it's a good game design. I just can't believe anybody would, you know, stand in line to play the the helper guy in a fantasy role-playing game. Yeah. As a class, I could see it. As, a, as an attachment onto a class, I could see it better. Like maybe a profession or something? Yeah, in some way, like you get the benefit, but there's a certain, like kind of like, that's where you take the knight and turn him into the paladin. Well, I think I could see what he what he did because the whole game, all everybody who writes one of these has got their favorite books in Appendix N, right? And Gygax himself was famously not that crazy about Tolkien. This is very Tolkien-esque. I mean, you wouldn't run a literal Lord of the Rings campaign with this this system. There's better rules for that, but it's very Tolkien inspired, and this is part of that. And and you know, nicely done, really good attempt. Um, I'm not buying it. I could see a really cool role playing character arc if you could swing it. Somebody starting off as a yeoman class, and they're the Samwise. They're there to be the support, and they're encouraging everyone else in their group to do better, to be better, to keep going. Over the course of the campaign, the yeoman becoming a, I'm not sure I want to say a true adventurer, but it would be like, you know, someone like Samwise getting enough experience under their belt. And rather than going back home and having that quiet life with their family at the end, you know, becoming the next Frodo or Bilbo or, you know, whoever. And then they have their own Samwise. Oh my God, Liz, you're the yeoman on the podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. Think about it. When, when we all started doing this, we were just doing a podcast, what everybody does. And you kind of became the mom of the podcast, keeping the rest of us in line and making sure we didn't screw up too bad. But then you're the one amongst us who went off and took training and became a professional voice actor. Aha! See where? Ah. See how that worked? You became the hero. Nobody's paying me to do a Japanese sub dub. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, alas! I have only been paid the one time to do that, but still counts as professional. I suppose, but still, <laughs> I took the classes primarily to do better at my podcasting. So being asked at all to do a bit part was awesome, even if it never ever happens again. But. I mean, the classes are super fun. But yeah, I do see your point. Um, <laughs> I do think I would like to try playing a yeoman class in one of these games and just to, to see what it's like. But then I'm the kind of person who likes to choose the cleric. So I, I think there are people like me out there who would probably be interested in at least trying out the yeoman, if not being the yeoman on a regular basis. Uh, that'll be number three then. I love the idea of the errant. That's because I'm sure any of us who have read fantasy fiction published from the 70s on in, and you could arguably go back as far as House on the Borderlands in the early 20th century. John Carter. Almer. John Carter. Yeah, you can go yep. all the way back. I can't remember if House on the Borderlands was before. I think it was before John Carter. But I can't remember when. But anyway, the point is, the idea of a quote-unquote modern individual finding themselves in a fantasy world is almost as old as the genre. The idea of being encouraged to do that as an option is pretty cool. He gives a, a mechanic there so that your quote-unquote fantasy knowledge could potentially help you in-game to kind of compensate for the fact that, obviously, being a computer programmer is not going to help you much and Greyhawk or whatever. It's a nifty I'm I'm I think it's the only fantasy RPG I've seen that encourages something as an option like this. I can if there is another one, I can't recall it. 
I don't know if I agreed with the genre savvy that you're talking about because that that was the one thing that threw me off on the the errant because as a person as a fish out of water you shouldn't I mean you would probably have I don't know that's a that's just a weird well, but one. I think it just means like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court okay it's medieval times you got to fight with a, a sword and armor now but you know science yeah right and, well and he had a farmer's almanac which is pretty helpful well and <laughs> in a fantasy world you may know stuff about trolls now it might not be right but you know you may have an insight on the troll that People who maybe never have seen a troll might not, you know. I understand. I, I, or if you I just did totally the super cheesy, uh, you're your real selves, and you've been projected into the D and D world. Now, what do you do? Don't get your hands chopped off, thief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just ask Joel Rosenberg. Yep. So yeah, I really liked that. I thought that was a nifty option to stick in the game. Liz, combat. I like the ability for players at the table to be able to swap their initiative roles with each other. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, I missed that. That is cool. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you've got a really good role, but you don't have anything that you need to do in a particular combat round, but there's someone else who does need to be able to act first, you can swap with them and you'll take their poor role and they will take your good one. However, that does mean adversaries can do this too. And if you're surprised, you can't trade initiative. So that's one area where that does not apply at all. But I think that's pretty sweet. And it encourages cooperation. Yes. But I mean, yeah, there have been tons of times where I had a really great idea for a spell if I could have gotten it off at the beginning of the round and not had to worry about other people getting caught in the backwash. It would have been awesome for the combat, but I rolled really, really poorly. So it's like, well, that's not going to work anymore because by the time it's my turn, five other people are going to be right in there. So, you know, yeah, that'd be... So get your wizard to be best buddies with the high dex halfling and you're in business. Exactly. (laughs) Is that why they suggested having a, um, was it an initiative tracker? As one of the the assigned like uh, administrative roles, they were suggesting for okay. I could very well be. James was suggesting. I keep saying they, but I guess he's the only one. <laughs> it's the royal they. But I was kind of confused about that because it's like, how hard is it to go? Yeah, my initiative's ten, five, three. Call it out. I never, I've never needed to keep track of it as a group, unless it was like a high end battle game. Yeah, it, again, like a lot of things, it would depend on how many players you've got. If you got three, it's no problem. You got ten. Mm. Mm. It might be, an, yeah. especially as the GM, sorry, the narrator, which is what he's called in this game, is handling like dozen monsters. It would help. And it would help, you know, and again, it's an idea of keeping everyone engaged. You know, do you really need it? Maybe not. But it gives the player something to do when it's not necessarily their turn. I get it, Corbett. I mean, because in the old days, we would play with just three or four players. But, you know, out at Gateway Games, they got a big table. So it's eight or ten people and con games, same thing. Well, actually, can I go to number three then, or are we? Because my number three kind of segues off of the initiative tracker. Because I really like the idea that they they he puts this in as an alternative rule, but I think it's a good base. I mean, I think it happens regardless. Somebody starts keeping track of things, and he suggests keeping a a treasure keeper and an initiative tracker. And I didn't know why you would need an initiative tracker, but I guess if you have sort of a combat coordinator, well, like Liz's idea of oh, if I do this spell first, then then we can alleviate a lot of problems later like good idea uh the treasure keeper there's always somebody who's keeping treasure track monkey. of the, the big hall yeah and there's usually a map person it's like it's basically like assigning the idea of everybody should have a job mm-hmm. aside from their character doing something yep. and uh, it keeps activity going around the table and i like that okay jim my number three uh is a more general but it's one of the big selling points of the book, especially as you hold it and thumb through it and and then read into it. It's a fully modern 21st century approach to the player demographics that are going to be buying the book. I'm the oldest one here. None of us are younglings, but the, and, and neither is James. I, I don't know how old he is, but he's a contemporary. He's not a kid either. But he sat down and uh, very thoughtfully wrote this. And then uh, the guys at Gallant Games, especially his interior artists, um, really stepped it up, uh, creating something that 2020 young players will glom right onto. James, Full disclosure, James and I are 
friends in real life and chatter like magpies on Facebook messages sometimes. And he was laying some of this down for me a few months ago. And, and I'm looking at the copy you guys have. And I'm like, you changed so many names. It's lineage, not race. It's assistants and hirelings, not NPCs. And then he started sharing the art, which is wonderful and glorious. The two artists are Nicholas Giacondino. Hey, I got that. And uh, Mike Bruto. And I'm not sure which one of those is the main illustration artist, but whichever one of those uh, guys I did the main illustrations. They're um, gender diverse, race diverse. It's super nice to see something like that. It's very fresh. None of it's uh, overhanded. It's a tricky thing to do. And he did it great. I always have to go through like a calliope carousel in my head just to ask an artist, give me a female protagonist here because I'm old and I have to, I have to, I have to, you know, very thoughtfully make sure I'm doing the best I can do. And uh, James is just like, ah, it's no big deal. I, I like the fresh approach like that. Does that make am I Am I talking gibberish or does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I love it. I mean, I, it, it's not the same illustration style naturally, but it was a lot like that uh, webcomic Order of the Stick. That's what that's that's the approach of like, just let's forget about all that and just do real people playing real fantasy games. Right. My number two, he managed to cover something that has bugged me in D&D-ish games forever. Dwarves are the ones to find secret doors and other pat- hidden things in a dungeon, not frickin' elves. <laughs> Thank you. They live underground, not an elf who lives in the secret in a frickin' treehouse in the frickin' woods in the frickin' middle of frickin' nowhere. <laughs> so anyway, that was mine. But they don't have magic. What's up with that? Who, the dwarves? Yeah, they, you can't be a wizard. Yeah, well, it's, that's... That's more traditional than Yeah, not. that's more traditional. Really? Yeah. I mean, they make magic just weapons. just weird. Everybody else. But... Yeah, I guess. But they don't actually <laughs> cast spells or anything. You started on second edition, didn't you, Corbett? Well, no. Started... Oh, start out? No, no. I started off with the basic. Which one? Uh, Red Book. Oh, uh, Mincer? Yeah. So close. Sorry. Oh, was it Mincer? No, 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 no. It was Pink Book. Pink. Mulvey Cook. That's um, Mulvey yeah. Cook. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well... I was going to say, I don't have a problem with dwarves not being able to be wizards. I do think, at least as far as, you know, maybe making an NPC or something, you know, a lot of magical weapons are supposedly dwarven made or something like that. Mm. You know, how would they imbue magic into weapons if they can't work it in some way? You know, maybe some sort of a blacksmith kind of magical blacksmith class or something like that. They're extra resistant to magic. So I was thinking, okay, maybe they have a low level wizard. Well, or something, I've seen but... that. I've also seen things like, you know, especially treated and created anvil or forging hammer that then when used to make a weapon or becomes out magical. That's sort of... Or just the idea that the craftsmanship is so fine. It is magical. It is, like, you know, yeah. A nano-edge sword, okay, that's plus two. Like elven armor? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> number two. All right. Well, number two. The ability of wizards to do something called tap the essence. If they have run out of spell slots, they can reach into the very essence of magic within themselves to cast spells, basically using their own life force. The more powerful the spell, the more physical damage they do to themselves in order to actually cast. You can have that heroic dying cast. Yeah, I mean, if things are utterly dire and this is what you need to do, you know, even though you're totally tapped out in all other respects, you could give your life cast that spell even though it will kill you the spell will still work you know you may not have enough endurance to to survive the casting but it will cast and you know even though i'm i'm giving myself up for this it's not going to be in vain because i know what i'm doing is going to work i just think that's very cinematic it's a good rule i mean who who here among us hasn't broken the staff of elemon command over one knee at least once. Intentionally? Well, for fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe it was just Midas the Mad. Okay. <laughs> oh! well, uh, well, the word mad and the name was yeah, kind of a uh, giveaway. giveaway but, but yeah, that's my All number right. two. I think that's a really cool ruling. Okay. Very simple, very quick. But uh, when he's describing dice, 
I, I quoted it just to remember, but he, he specifically says, there is no die with 100 sides. Which? Scoff. Is, yeah, isn't exactly <laughs> true. It's a terrible dice to use. But there is the Zakihedron, yes. Yep, it is. A, it, it exists. We bought one for one of our, our players at our table because she always screwed up trying to figure out how to do the, the percentiles with 2d10s. It's a great dive. If you need a pee break, just roll that thing and go take your, you know, go, go visit the little halfling screen. figure out what number it's on. Come back and it'll still be a rolling. <laughs> or if you need to play golf and you lost the other golf, golf ball, ball. Yeah, you're good to go. <laughs> And if you have a cat... <laughs> Hours of entertainment. But that's it. Dice. It's hardly a raft. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. I can't believe I got to my number two without you getting it to it first, Mike. I uh, really like the uh, rules for damage and death. You know what I'm used to, mm. DCC and MCC. It's a little fussy, but it's no more fussy than 5e, and it's really well constructed. And since you're the Mike and the Mechanics guy... You check me to make sure I've got this right. Okay. Somebody attacks you and you take damage. You have endurance points, not hit points. So first thing you're going to take is a hit on your endurance point total minus the armor reduction value of whatever armor you're wearing, which makes perfect sense. If that attack or subsequent attacks gets through the armor reduction value and gets you to zero endurance points or, or less or more negative, I mean, then you're starting to make death saves and the number you have to beat is however many negative endurance you are. I thought you only had to make one save when you hit zero. Like you stop. You don't have to well, make it like assuming... every turn, do you? In your games where the damage stops once you drop, sure. <laughs> well, I know once you fall unconscious, you have to immediately make a saving throw and to see if you suffer a grievous wound. Right. And right. So so if you if you miss the roll, you suffer a grievous wound. There's a very short, tight grievous wound table that tells you actually what happens. And that's where James has done the things where he's he's taken a, a riff of DCC and simplified it and made it his own. Because that table is everything from lose your head to just lose an eye, get a scar, take some damage, whatever. And it's a little, it seems a little fussy to me, but I bet when you're playing this game by session two, everybody's just got the hang of it and it's really cool. Well, I like the reduction value because it reminded me of, and I hate to bring up Victorious again, but when I play in Mike's game, it's like the invulnerability power in Victorious. Whatever points you have in invulnerability, you get to subtract that from damage that you take and then whatever is left is what you actually wind up taking so when i read that it's like oh yeah i totally get that it's just another instance of where he's he's done the same thing throughout the game where he's just taken a survey of all the other games nicked the best bits and then mixed them up in a new and fresh way i liked <laughs> okay. it number one my number one i really liked the despair mechanic oh yeah little cthulian yeah, yeah was, that's kind of what I wrote right. down. It's like it's like sanity in it's Call of Cthulhu. It's like sanity, yeah. dragon fear, and just awe at a terrible monster. Because it's not limited to dragons or Cthulhuid monsters. It's the more horrible the thing, the more... And it's been something I always have griped about. You know, you've got these first-level farm boys from the podunk nowhere, and they suddenly encounter walking skeletons. In D&D, what's the first thing people say? Get them! Now, realistically, <laughs> they're not going to do that. They're going to go, ah, it's a skeleton! Now, maybe they won't pee their pants and run, but it's going to kind of shake them up a bit. And I think the despair mechanic really works in that regard. And yet it's simplified, mm -hmm. especially compared to Call of Cthulhu's sanity system. Well, remember the in um, Neverending Story, you know, the bog of despair or whatever it was and you know Artax the horse succumbs and allows himself to be drawn under and Don't dies give me a traumatic flashback liz <laughs> but that was kind of what i thought of when i read about the despair mechanic it's like oh it's just like a never-ending story or just you know you're a couple of halflings out in the middle of mordor trying to get across a lava field yeah. okay all your roles are at disadvantage now okay so that's my one liz I'm going to go with the Changeling lineage as my number one. Pro or against? I'm glad we got to that. I, I love the Changeling. I love the idea of the Changeling. 
I would like to try to play a changeling. They're very human looking at first appearance, but as you pay more attention to them, there just seems to be something a little a little weird about them. They're, you know, you're not quite sure. It's like, what the hell? And it could be that it's, you know, something like a strange eye color or whatever, or it could be something, you know, really subtle, like, you know, cats hate them or, you know, milk curdles when they, <laughs> when they get in close contact with it or something, you know, you, you don't know, it could be anything. It, it's someone who, you know, are they actually human? Are they actually a fae? You're not quite sure. That boy ain't right. Yeah, it's it's kind of the Luna Lovegood of the party. She's a little weird, but she seems to know things <laughs> when it sounds like she's crazy. But <laughs> and I, I just think it's a really cool idea for a character race. And they're strange, they're uncanny, but they're not going to be game. Did it strike you? Okay, like in in Dungeon Crawl Classics, Joe Goodman did this genius thing where instead of endless skills for the fighter, there's just mighty deeds, and that can be whatever skill you want to make up on the spot if you hit the roll. Mm-hmm. This looked to me like okay, here's your race for everybody who wants to play that extra special character. Yeah. So like in Knights at Dinner Table, this would be the same race that or lineage that Sarah would play really really well, and Newt would try and Jimmy into some game breaking stuff. <laughs> But that's a genius design move to give the players, to give those kind of players a place to go, because because that's a lot of people. Instead of you know quarter orc, half ogre, whatever's, everybody can be a changeling and just make it up at character creation yeah. and good to go. The character can be a unique snowflake. Well, the thing is about the changeling, though, you know, because it's odd. There's also things that are bad that happen to that type of character, too. Their animals are automatically going to not like them. They're going to have a hard time getting horses or mules or whatever to stand their presence enough to be able to ride them. You know, there's lots of little things that they have to put up with that make the character not a walk in the park. You know, if you're going to be a changeling, yeah, you get some some neat things and you're a little weird, but you've also got to put up with some drawbacks, too. What is your number one, Corbett? I'm a little concerned that the manuscript, without any any illustrations in it at all, is 200 pages. How big is it on your end, Jim? It, it's a 200-page book, and hang on, I'll double I'll double check that. Uh, da, 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 da. uh, layout and everything with you know illustrations, character sheet came out to two twenty one. Okay, it's not too not bad. Much then. bigger. I was afraid it was going to be like almost three hundred pages once you threw in enough illustrations because I knew we had a whole bunch coming. The the layout and art on the whole thing are chef's okay. kiss. Okay, no, I just like because I, I went through and kind of counted out like the first edition AD and D was one hundred twenty seven pages, but then the second edition AD and D jumped all the way to what three hundred and. Oh, what was it? 320 pages or no, it was 570 pages. Ah, yeah. Second edition. Think about that. You can kill somebody with that book, though. It's nothing like Pathfinder, which is 640 pages. So, and according to Amazon shipping, 4.4 pounds. Good to know. (laughs) Especially if you're a rodent. Very much. That's some rat killing there. But anyway, and he's kept it digest style, didn't he? It seemed like it was a much smaller format as far as um, the layout on the book. So I thought that was kind of kind of cool, but I was kind of kind of nervous that it was going to feel like uh, you know the Gideon Bible or something where or a square, yeah, just like a, a big block of pages. <laughs> oh dear, that could be cumbersome, but nice to carry. So a small digest book, not too heavy, not not much bigger than the uh, what the fifth edition fifth edition D and D game book it was uh, three twenty pages, keeping page counts here. And just to know, riffs only two hundred fifty six pages. It's kind of surprised. I thought it was a lot bigger than that. Again with the riffs. Yeah. It's something I've been going to lately, but I don't know why. He's rifting. <laughs> I'm rifting. <laughs> All right, Jim. My number one is what James Bond did with the attributes, because two out of the four of us have, have done versions of this ourselves, and everybody who does one of these does this. Okay, we know what D&D has, the six attributes. Now we're going to do our version and change names and swap stuff around. And this is the best version of that I've ever seen because some of them are one for one 
And some of them, uh, at least in my opinion, are interesting combinations. So, you know, might equals strength, finesse equals dexterity, easy enough. Resolve, oh, that's kind of willpower and fortitude. Insight, well, that reads like it's kind of intelligence and charisma combined. Bearing is just charisma and, you know, fan of the things I like and enjoy. Wheel as luck mechanic, that should be in every game because it's in mine. So I thought that was just super, super concise. I, I th- think that was done with a great deal of insight, bearing, finesse, and wheel. Mighty. You know, and, and, and then coming from a place where when he's first, we're just chit-chatting months and months ago, and he's just wheeling us off. I had the same knee-jerk reaction Michael Curtis had when I wanted one of mine to be called psionics. He's like, why are you changing it if it doesn't need changing? Okay, you're right. But I had the same attitude with that until I read the rules and went, oh, I see. That's good. That's your number that one. That was my number one. All right. Well, let's head on over to see what makes the save and what takes half. What makes the save and what is going to take half? What makes the save? What doesn't make the save? And I'll start us off. What makes the save? No gnomes! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No gnomes. I am happy. What takes half? Single saving throw. Bah. So you've upgraded from... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On reflection, I'll go to a bah. But I'm holding the line at bah. What is your problem with single saving throw? They're wrong. Well, help help me out then. Do you want the, the traditional three as of now... Fort willpower oh, God, and reflex, no. or do you are you want the whole Megilla with saves versus breath weapons, magic wands, and athlete's foot? I want saves based on attributes. It's what they're for. Why not use them? Logical. So, uh, Liz, over to you. All right then. <laughs> okay, what makes the save? There are so many things that. I adore about this game, and any one of them could fit into this makes the save category. Really, I guess what I am most impressed with is the fact that James took what was already such a beautifully crafted set of rules that promoted a feel of heroic mindset and play with his first edition, and he made it even more so here. The, the the sheer thoughtfulness that is behind every change really shone when I was reading through this. And he's managed to distill that essence of heroic play and sense of wonder even further down than he did before. I'm super impressed with that. And as much as I loved first edition of The Hero's Journey, I'm convinced that I'm going to love the second edition even more. What doesn't make the save? This book is not out yet. It is not in my hand. I do not care for that. I want it. Seriously, this was really difficult for me. I love virtually everything about this game, and I fangirled hard all over it, all over again. So trying to find something that I can nitpick about this game, I'm just going to play to my strengths and say kobolds aren't puppies and that's wrong there you go that that's all i got that's all i I got it's it's a meh at best it is because i could easily make them puppies and it wouldn't hurt a damn thing with these rules (laughs) i mean honestly i love the write-up for the kobold i think it's awesome it really calls back to the folklore of kobolds as they quote-unquote really were, so to speak. I love what they have done to the monster itself. Their abilities, what he talks about, what they can do, the way they live. I'll just take all of that and say that they're little puppy-faced dudes, and everything else I will remain, I will keep as the rules say. They're they're awesome. (laughs) But yeah, I had a really hard time, and I really, really like this game. So take what I say with a grain of salt. It's really hard for me to find something bad to say about it. But I mean, I think it's great. 
Corbett. Makes the save, I actually agree with Jim's number one as the makes the save that uh, after hearing, because I was part of the interview, believe it or not, I was there. <laughs> Even James talking to us was having to retranslate what each stat was because we didn't know. Reading through it, it's really fluid. It actually is pretty pretty natural to like, oh yeah, it's it's this now. It's not that. It's it's this other thing. It's not this. And the way things are rearranged work really well. And I think that's, I, I, I got to admit, there's a lot of retro clones where they try to rename something and it just feels like, I don't they're, know. They're uh, renaming uh, it just to rename it? Yeah. it's It's got a patchwork quilt feel to it, you know, kind of that blotch right over the spot where it used to say something else and now it says the other thing like like white out and... <laughs> it doesn't feel like that it feels very smooth it feels much more natural at the time of the interview i was thinking boy that he kept having to tell us what those things were but that's because uh well he's trying to let you the listener know more about his game which is good sometimes you need that quick like yeah it's like a bicycle you've ridden one hop on and start going you'll be fine and that's pretty cool. And it does feel very bicycle-like. So in that sense, Liz is okay. <laughs> I think there was a what pull quote that? for the back cover in the next printing in there somewhere, Corbett. This game is spackle-free, Corbett. <laughs> <laughs> spackle-free. Uh, the one thing I think that really bugged me the most, and this is Mike touched on this, there are no religious anythings, no religious references to to priests, clerics, uh, druids monks uh anything like not even as a profession somebody there's no pantheon there's no spirit people there's no there's nothing to believe in that sounds pretty depressing but i'm sure there is he did talk about a pantheon uh for a later book so i'm probably just complaining about nothing so grouse 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 but it just seems peculiar not to have a spiritualist uh, a shaman uh, a mystic some weird guy with a robe. Well, you got a wizard, I guess, but eh, it just feels funny. So that's... Yeah, it's the only ex-supernatural anything you get a feel for are basically fey. Oh, and there's hellhounds. How can there be hell if there's not a spiritual something? <laughs> but that's a grouse. That's totally a grouse. I'm pulling it back. They come from hell, Texas. Hell, <laughs> Texas. <laughs> and there's undead. So... Okay, now I'm not, now I am completely complaining. I'm sorry. So religion is out. Well, that I'm just guessing here. I've not talked to him about it in the slightest. But kind of like Jim was talking about how there was a there seemed to have been an intent to make this a very inclusive game, depending on you know regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, whatever. That may have been an intentional thing so as to not run into the religious minefield. I don't want to get serious on a gaming podcast, but I always like reminding myself that we are all atheists of 99% of the deities that have ever been worshipped. It's it, Even as a kid, when I picked up deities and demigods, I, I was I was cruising through that book and loving it until I got to the Hindu gods. And I was like, well, wait a minute, that's a real religion, you know, because at 18, 18 or 19, even I knew that was not a good thing. Shinto? Yeah, it, it's... But anyway, all right, Jim, take us home. My makes the save is just that this game is the best, most thoughtful, professional next generation game design and writing I've seen in a in a good long time. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of the uh, content and execution of this from stem to stern, uh, which is why I backed it already on Kickstarter. What doesn't make the save is I have to admit that it's not my personal play style. So I I, w I would never run it like anything else. If, if it was you guys, the four of us, and James said, hey, I'm going to run Pathfinder for you, I'm in because it's you guys. I'd play it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not my play style. I get what he did here, and I'm a little in awe of it. There's There are different levels of game designer and... Uh, I, I see what he did here, and it's really good. It's it's anybody who is listening to this and intrigued at all should go straight to Kickstarter and, and back it, because uh, you can't be more broke than uh, an <laughs> RPG game designer like me, and even I could do twenty five bucks for the soft cover. And if you're listening to this after the Kickstarter, go to the Gallant Knight Games website. Or Barrel Rider, I'm sure. <laughs> right when you just find this in 2024, <laughs> just It'll go be to the website it. and buy it, man. I will say it's already been funded. Yes. So it's getting made. I would be shocked if it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Although, wouldn't that be embarrassing if it wasn't and we did this podcast? I seem to recall when we did the interview with James a couple of months back, you know, he said at the time of this interview, you know, even though the Kickstarter has not begun yet, the rules are written. This book is ready to go. (laughs) So, yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, that has been second edition of the Hero's Journey RPG from Barrel Rider slash Gallant Knight Games by James Spun. Buy one today and say good night everybody good night everybody good night everybody free arc see ya everybody <laughs> <laughs>